Hello and welcome to The Roundtable, a Next Generation Politics podcast. Next Generation Politics is leading a movement of young people committed to building bridges across various divides. I'm Madeline, and this week, Inika and I spoke with Bhavani Venkantraman, Associate Professor of Chemistry and Chair and Departmental Faculty Advisor for Natural Sciences and Mathematics at the New School. Professor Venkantraman focuses on how chemistry can be made relevant to students and to issues of social justice and equity, and how to get students thinking deeply and becoming informed voters. Pretty cool, right? Making sense of the world today requires integrating multiple disciplines, and so she strives to connect the molecular world with macro-social issues. More specifically, Professor Venkantraman's work tackles challenges around safe drinking water. We all have an intimate relationship with water and know it's essential to keeping us alive, but what is it about the properties of good old H2O that makes it so? Water dictates so much about public health, safety, educational opportunities, and is a powerful medium for exploring the interconnectedness of human existence, and yet we rarely examine its centrality to our way of life until after a tragedy like Flint, Michigan occurs. Professor Venkatranam works to make the invisible visible and visceral. She encourages us to look at the individual issues discreetly, but rather to connect the dots and look at systems, and to always hold issues of justice and equity at the forefront. She has a book coming out in February that connects the chemistry of water to the policies and management issues around drinking water, a connection we found fascinating and think that you will too. Life cycles should be at the forefront of policymaking, especially for vulnerable populations. As such, Professor Vangantranum allows us to focus on how to communicate basic scientific research on issues such as water quality, air pollution, and climate change to us non-scientists, something we think that non-scientists really appreciated. Thank you for listening. Hi, my name is Inika Kodestane, and I'm a high school senior from New Jersey. And in addition to being on the podcast, I'm also the co-editor-in-chief of the Next Generation Politics blog. And drinking water is something that has been a very, very hot topic issue, especially in America. And also in my own school, like I remember we got tested for lead and there was too much lead in our in our drinking water, which didn't stop anybody because if you need to drink water, you need to drink water in school. But it's very interesting. Like I'm taking AP environmental science right now and the sorts of impacts that having clean water has on on different populations. So I'm looking forward to today's conversation. Hi, my name is Madeline Mays and I'm a high school junior from Brooklyn, New York. In addition to being a podcaster, I'm also a lead civic fellow here at NGP. And climate change and environmental politics is not necessarily my strongest suit, which I've always been a bit insecure about because it's such a hot topic for our generation and and for society right now. And as a result of that, I'm really looking forward to this conversation and I'm hoping to expand my knowledge a bit and hear what you've done in relation to this field. So hello, everyone. My name is Bhavani Venkatraman. And I'm currently an Associate Professor of Chemistry at Eugene Lang College of Liberal Arts at the New School. I've been here now about 18 years. So as I said, I was trained as a physical chemist and then came to this country for graduate school. What really excited me about being here at Eugene Lang College was the 
ability to think about my discipline in ways that I may otherwise not have had I stayed in a more traditional chemistry program. It's not about right or wrong, it's just different for me personally. Along the way, I sort of got interested in trying to see ways in which chemistry could be made relevant in some ways to students. Chemistry is a discipline which deals with the extremely tiny, the, you know, you cannot see it, you can't touch it, you can't interact with it. And that's typically how we learn. We learn through our senses. And chemistry is happening at a realm way beyond that. But yet, what is happening at that scale, arguably, is what is dictating much of what's happening. I mean, our whole functioning of keeping us you know, alive really is, at a certain level, a very chemical process. And coming to Eugene Lang College to teach chemistry, it was also a recognition of how can I make the discipline of chemistry relevant to issues of social justice and equity? And an environmental lens seemed a really appropriate way of connecting the molecular with the macro to the social, because many of the challenges we face today requires really coming together of multiple disciplines. These, these issues are not going to be addressed by a single discipline. It really is coming together of people who are deeply trained in certain disciplines, but how can we talk across disciplines? So in, in many ways, teaching here at, at Eugene Lang, and again, sort of my own uh, interest in trying to see ways in which I could make chemistry relevant to my student body, many of whom are not going to become chemists or go down the path that I myself went down, but for whom chemistry is part of the larger liberal arts education. And so I sort of through researching of trying to understand what are some of the stumbling blocks in the learning of chemistry. As I said, for much of that research, it's about helping students make it chemistry relevant, but I didn't want it to be something that just seemed a little artificial also. To me, it had to be something that the chemistry was central to the problem, but not sufficient. So as I often tell my students, science, or in my case, chemistry, is necessary to look at these challenges, but not sufficient. How do we draw from multiple disciplines? And water is sort of a theme or context that I came to realize really allowed for looking across multiple scales, across multiple systems, across multiple disciplines. We all have an intimate relationship with water. We know we need water. You know, often I don't think we pause and say, well, what is it about that water molecule? What is it about H2O that allows it to have the properties that make it essential for life? And to your point, one of the things you begin to realize as I look in the literature around access to safe drinking water is it dictates so much of the community's um, basic public health, social health, educational opportunities. Young girls are spending inordinate amounts of time to collect water, which means they're not being educated. So it was also, I think, a way of, yes, life needs water, but from a public health standpoint, from humans, it is safe drinking water that's essential. So sort of pulling all these pieces together is how I developed a course, an intro-level course, where we explore a lot of basic chemistry concepts one might in a general chemistry course, but beginning to apply to look at the, through the lens of water. So going from the molecular properties of water that make it essential for life, but also recognizing how the same properties actually make it very prone to contamination which then allows us to look at the social challenges around access to safe drinking water, who has it, the politics, economics, the justice issues. And having taught that course for a few years now and doing my own sort of research around it, trying to make sure that what I was bringing to the class was supported by the research, the evidence, 
is sort of what led me to my own book project around that. So the water, I would say in many ways is illustrative example of how we try to teach scientists here at Eugene Lang College, where we want students to understand scientific principles, scientific methodologies, but also see how to apply this, these, these, this disciplinary knowledge to look at larger social co- uh, challenges and contexts. A couple of things that you said reminded me of, um, I actually took this course the summer between my middle school and freshman year as kind of like a bridge program into high school. And it was completely focused on water. Everyone took a social studies class, a math class, an English class, and a science class. Mm. And the whole program was in in relation to water. So we would focus each class on water. And I remember going into the program, I'm like, oh, this is going to be a class about water. What what much is there going to be to say (laughs) about this? It really changed the way I looked at my usage of water, we looked a lot about like how many gallons of water we're using per day in our households. And I remember being completely mind blown about that. And it just like made me more aware of like the water that I'm using and drinking and how I'm so privileged to have that mm-hmm. access to it. I mean, in many ways, I think I sort of use this view of using water as a way of making the invisible visible, right? So the invisible molecular nature of water visible and, and people can relate to that. And then going across skills, talk to some of the paradox of water, the idea that water is essential for life, but at the same time also very easily contaminated. There's much that I think we also don't pay attention to in an, in a country like the United States, where by no means is safe drinking water accessible to all who live in this country. There's about 8 million people in the United States, according to statistics, that do not have access to safe drinking water. Many of it a result of you know systemic social challenges that communities have borne. For the majority of us, if I might just start with that as a start, we open up the tap, the water comes out, we don't think about what it took for that water to go from source to tap so that when I drink it, I, I'm not immediately thinking about, oh, am I going to get sick by it? For the most part, I mean, I, I, I you know there was clearly a case with lead in, in New Jersey, which I know is also sort of, sort of you know, continuation of the, of the Flint crisis as well, which sort of then many communities realized this was not just a single town's problem, but much more of a larger United States problem. In the, in the late 1800s, early 1900s, as our understanding of disease spread was developing, as the germ theory of the fact that there was these microorganisms that were responsible for the spread of diseases like cholera. The point being is that as science sort of understood how infectious diseases were being spread and how water is the medium through which the vectors can be spread, and then also the treatment technologies, the disinfection, the filtration, et cetera. You know, nations that had the economic capacity to do so did build large filtration systems. And so in the United States, all this to say, just going back a little bit in time, in the early 1900s, a lot of that infrastructure was established. And still there was a lot of variability. Some states were still struggling with safe water, others were not until, you know, fast forwarding many years until 1970, when the Environmental Protection Agency was established, and then from that, the various environmental acts that, particularly for water, the Clean Water Act and the Safe Drinking Water Act in 72 and 74. And so I think in many ways, uh, since that time, we have sort of taken for granted the fact that the water we're going to get from a TAPS is safe, almost like we feel we have solved the problem. And water infrastructure is also very invisible. 
you know, we often don't know where our water is coming from. The pipes are underground. And then all of a sudden you open your tap and there's this water and you're drinking it, right? So again, it's this very critical infrastructure that we sort of assume we've, we've made the early investments in, but we don't realize there's going to have to be uptake, a maintenance, upgrading. And then I would say more recently, because of our lack of paying attention to, again, the properties of water, how easily it gets contaminated, the explosion of the chemical industry. And now we're finding all these chemicals ending up in our water. Now, to be careful as a chemist, not every chemical is harmful. After all, we are, you know, there's chemicals in our body that we rely on. But clearly, there's enough chemicals which we're relying on, which have toxicity associated with them. And once things get into water, I mean, as you probably heard, water being a universal solvent, that just means it's able to dissolve a wide range of compounds, which is critical for life. Water doesn't differentiate between something that's good for life and that's something that's going to be toxic for life. It's just going to dissolve anything it comes into contact with. And so once it gets into water to extract, to remove it, to extract it from water is very infrastructure intensive. It's very expensive. It requires, you know, significant investment in systems, the policies, the engineering, the science, the, the regulatory frameworks. And that's, again, the invisible part of it. Most of us aren't aware of this, right? And so a lot of it was in trying to make the chemistry, the molecular visible to my students, it also was an opportunity to think about systems that we rely on that are in fact often invisible to us, but is what's allowing New York City, for example, to have actually amazingly high quality water for a large urban city. And we don't pay attention to that. And then you sort of, I mean, a lot of this is also historic, you know, the, the sort of the impacts of colonialism, you know, where these nations were then left without the resources to then set up water treatments and what have you. So it's, it's complicated very easily and quickly, but you can sort of see how you can connect the dots between the signs, the economics, the politics, the history, the social. And water is just such an amazing lens through which to explore the interconnections. I think after like Flint, a lot of people became aware that like water insecurity was a serious issue, even in a country like the United States. So since then, like, what do you think are steps that have been taken like policy wise to uh, guarantee like fresh water, clean water? Flint was the words described the, I mean, negligence is mild. I think what happened there. I mean, it was clear case of environmental injustice at, you know, scales and magnitudes that are unmentionable, I think particularly when the communities were making it very clear something was wrong with their water and they were not being paid attention to. And it's sort of ironical, the fact that what the community was responding to were things like browning of the water and the and rashes that were being developed. But if that hadn't happened, they may not even been aware that there was lead dissolving in the water because lead doesn't have the taste or the, you're not going to react to the lead immediately. But unfortunately, you will feel the lead poisoning over, you know, years of exposure. So it's this odd situation where some of those other more physical attributes that, oh, you know, health uh, reactions people were responding to. The, like I said, the brown water. And it took over a year for, I think it was like 18 months before the funding was a response by the, by the state and national, federal level to respond to that. But because of that, you're absolutely right. There was clearly an awareness that, so again, to go back about the history of of drinking water, the lead pipes were laid down. As the United States was sort of establishing the infrastructure of the delivery of drinking water, lead 
was considered to be a very, it's a very malleable metal. It's very soft. It's easy to bend and flaunt with. It was, it was not even back then that there was toxicity associated with lead, but the lead industry basically you know, said, well, the levels of lead that's going to be in water are going to be incredibly small. It's not going to have health effects. It basically convinced the people who had to make the decisions around infrastructure that lead was safe. So, and I'm sure there was elements of politics and, and corruption during happening at that time too. But the point being is that we've, this country, a, a lot of communities then were, were connected to the water, the drinking water treatments through lead piping. And, and then we had lead plumbing, we had brass plumbing, whatever, in our households. It wasn't until 1986 when lead was banned to use, and even the lead solder that was connecting joints was banned. But still some houses are older than that, and so there's remnants of lead in, in the buildings. So the way to address this, on the one hand, is to completely remove all the lead piping and replace it by lead-free piping. The argument has always been, well, that's too expensive to do that, right? So communities that could afford to do this, which had the tax base to do it, did it. Communities that didn't have the finances, the tax base to do it, weren't able to afford to do it. And again, here in comes the chemistry of water. You have to sort of monitor some the water quality parameters, things like pH and other parameters to make sure that, I mean, for example, at, at, uh, at uh, acidic pHs, at pHs below 7, the water, the hydrogen ions can react with the lead metal and convert it into what's called lead ions, which then dissolve in the water. And so if you regulate the pH to be within safe limits, that's not going to happen. And there are other chemicals, like for example, if you have a high level of what's called chloride in the water, it can also react with the lead and it can leach the lead. And so water treatments are to avoid that, they actually add a chemical called an orthophosphate, which creates a passive layer on the lead piping so that the water then is not in direct contact with the lead, there's sort of a passivation layer that's created. And that has been shown to much be, um, to prevent the lead from leaching into the water. Well, in this particular town of Flint, just to give it, go back a bit, for cost savings measures, they were in economic distress. A lot of decisions were made without understanding this chemistry. And they decided to cut back on this. I mean, there were a lot of, a lot has been written on that. The point being is that they did not handle the lead management well. And there are EPA regulations around that, which then led to the leaching of the lead into the water, which then people being exposed to. As a result of that, and having communities really, you know, obviously uh, children's lead, the blood lead levels rising, et cetera, which we don't know what the long-term impacts might be on these children. The state itself did address it. They finally switched the water treatment systems that was causing the problem. They've invested in the money to replace the lead lines. It's interesting to note, if you look across the nation, the investments in water infrastructure actually went up after 2016. And prior to that, there actually was more, less and less money at the state and federal level going to drinking water infrastructure, but there was an uptick in that. So to your point, that was a response again after... You know, it's always a tragedy happens and then we respond to that. But in the recent infrastructure bill that was passed that President Biden signed, there is money allocated in that bill for replacement of lead service lines across the nations. And so finally, something which has been under the ground for over 100 years now that should have been replaced long time ago is finally getting attention. But people's, you know, health and communities' lives were the cost of this, right? The social cost of this is 
immeasurable and the and the and the psychological damage the, the trauma that these communities have experienced over that how do you know we tend to have this very band-aid approach right we sort of fix the problem at the end as opposed to right from the start and i think with water we really need to pay attention to the fact that the more we can prevent contamination in the first place the benefits social economic benefits are just going to be huge I feel like I, I must have been around 10 at the time when it happened. And so like, I didn't really feel like there was anything that affected me. But then all of a sudden, there was a note sent home when school that was just saying, oh, our pipes are going to be tested. And that's about it. It's great that all of this is happening. Like all these acts are being passed on the government level. But I feel like this this issue really isn't getting the attention that it deserves. And that's something that you keep bringing up and that I, I really think that needs to be stressed is that we hear like so much about climate change and environmental justice, but I feel like at least amongst my generation, it just seems like water pollution or like water quality seems like, oh, that's one of the issues that the adults can fix. So I was wondering if you could speak a little bit more about your book and what kind of audience you're hoping that this book will uh, get to. My whole teaching here at Eugene Lang College has really been about what can I do to help students think of these issues critically and to become um, informed voting individuals, right? Because to me, if you happen to be a citizen of the United States, you have the right to vote. That ultimately is where change must happen because this has to be something that state, local, federal governments have to respond to. But in, in even though it might often not seem the case, they are in theory representing us, the people. And the more we understand these issues, the more informed we are about these issues, the more we can vote for people who we, we feel are actually going to pay attention seriously. But also more importantly, the more we can look at what it is they're proposing to do and make sure that it isn't just lip service, high level policy discussion, but what is it? how does it translate down to the community, to the individual, for example, we absolutely need targets to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, don't get me wrong, but what's often not paid attention to is how are we going to do that and how are we going to do it in ways that are just and equitable? That is, we don't want to solve one problem by creating another set of problems, right? So it's think about these systems, right? So your point about climate change and drinking water quality, it's often considered, and rightly so, because it's almost seemed like it's talked by two different groups of people. It's rarely in the same conversation that we're looking at these two issues, right? But if you think about it, it, they're all connected, right? So climate change is going to impact precipitation patterns. It is going to impact the quality of the water. So problems that we already are dealing with, you know, droughts or regions that have no access to water or where the water quality is already being, you know, challenged by whatever the local conditions are, are only going to be exacerbated by climate change. And so one of the things I think, I mean, it's hard to do that in, in a given semester, but if you think about all these various courses you, you take as, as a student, let's say, is how can we sort of begin to connect the dots so we don't see these as different problems and, and what are more holistic ways to address this challenge, right? So in another class I teach, which looks at energy systems, you know, we often, climate change is clearly a challenge, but we often don't pay attention to if we shift away from fossil fuels, we're improving air quality. And air quality is responsible for, you know, millions of deaths, premature deaths globally because of the health impacts, right? So we, again, we think of this as two separate problems, but it's all caused by the same thing. And the same thing, a warmer planet 
is driving earth systems. It's going to change, like I said, you know, access to water. There's a lot of studies which have already shown about regions that are going to be water stressed. I think the critical thing that we need to think from, an, for me as an educator and for you as students, is look at systems, right? And, and begin to connect those dots because we can't think of these individual problems anymore, right? It's all connected. And then fundamentally also is whatever approaches, whatever policies is paying close attention to issues of justice and equity. Are we creating systems where we're going to price certain communities out of access or are they going to bear the burden of my air being cleaner because they're doing the mining in some other part? of? So not, none of this is say we shouldn't do it. We have to shift in away from, let's say, fossil fuels. We have to address drinking water quality, but paying close attention to the how. I mean, this whole term of unintended consequences, I don't think is We've used that over and over again. I don't think we can do that anymore because we know there are going to be consequences, both good and bad. But I think we have enough understanding of, of these systems. We may not be able to predict everything, but we should be able to know that there are going to be pros and cons. And how do we maximize the pros but minimize the cons intentionally? And who is bearing that? And how do we make sure, again, it's not an unfair burden? So ultimately, with all these issues, whether it's water, whether it's energy, thinking about the social benefits, right? Because time and again, studies have shown that nations, communities as a whole, the, the returns on investment, if you want to think about it that way, to invest in clean water technologies, to reduce air pollution, the benefits on that, that the, that the community's economy or the nation's economy is just multiplied. If you had an investment portfolio that did as well as a Clean Air Act, which is what improved our air quality, we'd all be quite wealthy. <laughs> all to say is that I think I think that knowledge exists today and people are exploring these issues. The one thing that I will say is that 15, 20 years ago, some of the issues which are looking at, looking at life cycle assessments, looking at issues of justice and equity, were not even part of the conversation. And I would say today that's becoming much more the focus and central. I'm not saying it should, have, it should have happened 15, 20 years ago, but I think we, as we think about these, how can we forefront this? How can we put this at the center of our policymaking, of our votes? And, and how can we ensure that that is what happens so that everybody benefits and not just the same groups over and over again? If you look at a lot of the studies, so for example, the American Society of Chemical Engineers, I think that's what it's called. That's what they're called. Every four years, they put a report card on infrastructure. And so most of infrastructure gets a degrade. And this is infrastructure for everything. It's bridges, dams, airports, drinking water. It's all the infrastructure, right? And, and each of these categories get their own individual grades, and then they grade the infrastructure as a whole. So drinking water for a while has been on the D, D minus end of the spectrum. But ironically, even though it's rated so low, there haven't been that many incidences over the past about contamination of drinking water. But every time they put a report out, they're saying this is something that's just waiting to happen unless we make the investments. And there has been some money that's been allocated towards drinking water. And from 2017, it's now gone up to C minus. It's in the right direction. And I think even though the report doesn't talk about that, I just happened to see it recently because I just got released in 2021. Some of this might be because the investments, I think, post Flint in city and federal level have gone up in drinking water. So that's a positive. But like I said, we don't need tragedies to respond. But anyway, that's what's happened. 
they also made an assessment, and there have been other water organizations that have made assessments that believe that in order to really address and upgrade drinking water infrastructure, it's going to require like a trillion dollar investment between now and 2030 or something like that. So that's basically the whole infrastructure bill that could just go towards water, right? So it's a good sign. I mean, I think I think the one thing which gives me optimism is drinking water is not, this safe drinking water is rarely a partisan issue. I think everybody would say, even we heard our former president, much as he didn't act on it, would say, we need clean water and clean air, right? So I, I think to me, it's how do we find those points of common ground and, and then how do we work? And I think safe drinking water would certainly be the rare occasions when you might get both sides of the aisle actually voting on that. So another example, which people are increasingly becoming aware of in their drinking water is something called perfluorinated alcohol substances, goes with the name of PFAS, P-F-A-S. It's, it's what Teflon was made of. It's all these nonstick pans and anything. And it, it's used in a wide range of industries. Again, it has amazing chemical properties, which is why it was used. But now we're finding it in our drinking water and, and there's, you know, concerns about toxicity associated with it. So again, to try to address that, there's been some congressional action on that. And one of the few times when you, you see, again, both parties wanting a response to that, because it's something that they're deeply aware of if the constituents have unstable water. So to your point, I think it's it's perhaps... I'm not saying I'm optimistic, but I think we need to start finding those common points. I mean, if you look at some of the surveys on climate change, there was, you know, that varies as to who believes it's human cause or not. But if you look at the data on should we invest in renewable energies in, in the United States, it's like 85% of the people say yes. So again, maybe we just need to pay attention to those areas and use that as a way to drive investments. That's all for today with NextGen Politics. Special thanks to our editor, Clara Medina, our producer, Sanda Balaban, and to Jeremiah Hunt for our opening and closing music. Please check out our website at www.nextgenpolitics.org for links related to what we've discussed and to find out more about our work. And please recommend us to your civic-minded friends or to your friends you'd like to become more civic-minded. This is Maggie Yu for NextGen Politics.